Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning to the to the Mahaneum, the two camps of Word of Life Church, in-person, online congregation. Glad you're here. Here in St. Joseph, it's a, it's a beautiful Lord's Day morning, is it not? Mm, beautiful day. Beautiful day. All right, well, uh, as you have been alerted, we are still in the season of Easter. This is the sixth Sunday of the seven Sundays of Easter. So we're nearing the end of the six-month telling of the gospel story in the Christian calendar. You know how that works. We start with anticipating the birth of Christ. That's Advent. We started that way back on November 28th. And then we arrive at Christmas and all that goes on. And then the, 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 it's about six months, the six-month cycle of through the calendar telling the gospel story. It winds up with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That'll be June 5th. So we've been going through the calendar of the gospel story from November 28th and we'll reach the conclusion on June 5th and then we'll be in ordinary time and then we'll start it over again when we reach Advent uh, this year. So we're coming to the end of the story and that means that uh, we're, we are, we're focusing on the things that happened at the end of the story, how the, how the story is summed up. Uh, the New Testament reading in the lectionary, you know, the lectionary is, you know what that is, that's, that's prescribed public readings of scripture. It goes way, way, way back to the early church. There are different lectionaries, they get changed from time to time, but the idea of that certain scriptures would be read in the Sunday gathering at certain times of the year to coordinate with how we tell time through the story of Jesus, it goes all the way back to the very early church. And the lectionary readings for the New Testament, the next two weeks are from Revelation 21 and 22. You get that. That's apropos. We're coming to the end of the story. Where does the story end? It ends in the book of Revelation in those final two chapters. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. So for this Sunday, I'll preach from Revelation 21. Next Sunday, Revelation 22. That's the plan. Uh, and the sermon today derived from Revelation chapter 21 is entitled, The Darkness Will Not Endure. You like that? The darkness will not endure. Now, before we actually go into Revelation 21, I want to say some things in general about this mysterious book at the end of the Bible. This book called the Apocalypse or Revelation. Revelation is easily by far, without a contest, the most mysterious and most misunderstood and unfortunately the most misused book in the Bible. If I had my way, ever, ever began a sentence like that? If I had my way, preachers and teachers and pastors would have to obtain a special license before they could preach or teach from the book of Revelation. Come on now. I'm talking about the late, great planet left behind blood moon boys. 
I see you got 65 books. No, you can't. No, no, you cannot preach from the book of Revelation. You don't know anything about it. Uh, they'd, they'd, have to, they'd have to read their N.T. Wright and their Richard Bauckham and their Michael J. Gorman and their Barbara Rossi, and I'd make them read all those books. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a pope of anything, so it's not going to happen. But if we can get Revelation right, it is the perfect, glorious conclusion to the big story of redemption that the Bible's telling. If we get it right, if we get it wrong, it, 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 it goes bad. It goes bad. And, and nothing in the Bible goes bad like Revelation can go bad. But if you get it right, it's beautiful. It's glorious. It's the perfect culmination to the story. Now, the first thing to know about this book is the style in which it is written because it belongs to a particular genre. It belongs to what we call the genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature. Don't need to talk a lot about that other than to say that, that Daniel also would, at least in parts, be similar to that. It would also be in that style. And because it belongs to this genre of Jewish apocalyptic literature, the images in Revelation are symbols not to be literalized. Tell somebody. He said not to literalize it. You, you can't literalize them. The images in the book of Revelation are all symbolic. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't, you don't say, well, sometimes they are, sometimes. No, they're all symbols. In other words, you don't say, uh, let's see, is Jesus literally, literally now, a slain lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. No, that's a symbol. But Jesus is literally going to come back on a flying white horse with a sword in his mouth and kill 200 million people. <laughs> no, it's all symbol. The other symbol actually has to do with Jesus' word prevailing over the word, and he does so nonviolently with a sword, not in his hand, but in his mouth. And I count myself among those who have been slain by his word and raised to newness of life again. Amen. See, you can, you can preach Revelation better than the Blood Moon Boys. <laughs> I just made that up just now, that little phrase. That's kind of demeaning, isn't it? It's intended. Uh, all right, so... What is the book of Revelation? It's basically three things, or, like, or it has like a threefold agenda, maybe you could say it that way. Um, number one, Revelation is a prophetic interpretation of the cataclysmic events of the 60s and 70s. Not the 1960s and 70s. Not back when they were telling me that the beast was a supercomputer in Brussels and Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist. <laughs> no, it's a prophetic interpretation of the climactic, catastrophic events of the 80s, 60s, and 70s. The book is written in the, was written during the reign of Domitian. Um, uh, I'm not going to go into all the details. It's, it's what's written probably around 95, but its setting is the 60s and 70s, and it's given an interpretation of what had happened 30 years earlier with all kinds of upheaval throughout the Roman Empire, most significantly concluding in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Number two, Revelation is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. That is a huge theme. The beast, the false prophet, the great harlot are all symbols for the Roman Empire under control of the dragon that is the Satan. So it is a critique of the Roman Empire and thus of all empire. The book of Revelation is not about us, but it is for us. 
And the number three, revelation is a prophetic portrayal of the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ. I mean, the opening line is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalyptos, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it reaches its culmination in the final two chapters where we see that Jesus ultimately triumphs over all. And in that sense, there is a futuristic element to the book of Revelation, and that is in the ultimate triumph of Christ. All right, so with that as sort of a, a backdrop, a little clarification, let's look at, I'm not going to look at the whole chapter, but the first verses and the final verses of Revelation chapter 21. Let it thrill your soul. It's so beautiful. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sits upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. But I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the Lord, for the glory of God is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. The darkness will not endure. This is, in fact, Christian eschatology. You know that word? It's a fancy word. Study of last things. It's what Christians believe about where we are headed. How does the story culminate? Well, this darkness will not endure. This is, in fact, our enduring hope. That the darkness of evil, of sin, of pain, of suffering is present but temporary. It cannot last forever. It is fated to be overcome by the Lamb of God. We are apocatastasis people. I'm using these fancy words today. That's just a Greek word that I like. It shows up in Acts 3.21. I've been using it a lot lately because I like it. Apocatastasis. It means... Restoration of all things or, or universal restoration. It's translated different ways. But the apostle Peter tells us that there will be a time when Jesus Christ will restore all things. Let hope rise in your heart when I say that. This is the apocatastasis promise. And we're apocatastasis people. We believe in the restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. Now, this does not mean, and I want to, I want to stress, we are not naive. We are not uninformed. We are not putting our head in the sand. We are not practicing quietism and pretending that all is well when all is not well. We're not doing any of that. 
we know about the troubles. We know about the darkness in our world. We know about the threats that are around us. We know the great challenges that we and others are passing through. We know all about it, but we also have information that is not simply on the internet or on cable news. There is the information of revelation. By that, I primarily mean the revelation of the spirit given to us that Jesus is Lord, but then it's depicted in the book called Revelation, especially in the final two chapters. We have that information. And so we have all the other and we're serious about it. We're not trying to avoid it. We're not trying to be, you know, those that that simply don't care. We do care and we want to do our part, but we don't do so with a completely heavy heart because we still know by revelation that the darkness will not endure. It keeps us from spiraling off into despair. So I know it may look dark. It does look dark. And I know it may get darker for a time. I know that too. Uh, And we may be tempted to despair, but the whole point of this sermon is to help you to resist that. Don't despair. To, To be the people of God is to be a people of hope. Honest, open eyed, not trying to run apart away from the problem. And when we can, when we can, we try to lend aid and comfort and help where and when we can. But we're not despairing because we know this. The world will be saved. Oh, yeah. The world will be saved. It'll go through much. You know, the, the world may turn to salvation after trying everything else. But the world will be saved. How do I know that? Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. If God merely wanted to condemn the world, he could send a grumpy minor prophet. No, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through the son, might be, what is it? Saved. And by the way, the gospel story does not end with going to heaven. It ends with heaven coming to earth. That's, that's, that's an eschatological aspect that, that has been turned on its head and we need to put it back. I thought that salvation ultimately was we all go to heaven. You say, well, brother, you got, it. You got the right words, but you got it wrong. <laughs> salvation ultimately ends with heaven coming to earth. Because God is not giving up on his good creation that we call earth and human society and all of that. God is committed to it and is going to redeem it. So it's not about going to heaven. It's about heaven coming to earth. So no matter how bad things look, I boldly confess the darkness will not endure. Now, let me tell you this this little behind the scenes information, not that you're interested, but but here's, here's my method. I come up with a sermon idea and generally the title on Monday. And then I actually write the sermon though on Saturday. In between, I'll be thinking about it, doing it. But you know, that's, that's been my method for at least 20 years. Get the idea on Monday, get the title on Monday, write this thing on Saturday so it's just, it's, you know, it's just hot out of the oven is what it is. When I'm not giving you leftovers, it's hot out of the oven. That's why I like to do it. So on Monday, I had the idea and I gave this sermon the title, The New Jerusalem. Yeah, sort of prosaic. I mean, that's, you know, that's there. 
But on Thursday, before I actually got around to writing it, but on Thursday, I changed the title to The Darkness Shall Not Endure. Much better title, more provocative, more alluring, I think. Uh, But I changed it because of something I read. And I read it in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, going to Nerdville, we're going to talk a little Lord of the Rings here a little bit. John Ronald Rural Token. Tolkien. J-R-R. Tolkien. Whew, what a guy. What a guy. Every time I see him, it makes me want to smoke a pipe. It does. <laughs> J-R-R Tolkien. You know, he was this Oxford philologist. He studied ancient texts in their original languages. And he loved languages so much that he invented one. (laughs) Who does that? I think I'll invent a language. It's Elvish. I mean, there is actually a language of Elvish. I, I don't know who speaks it, but it's invented. But in giving us the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, Tolkien did no less than create an entire world. I I find it remarkable. I've read The Lord of the Rings now almost. I'm within two chapters of having read The Lord of the Rings now for the fourth time. I read it first in 2000. Oh, these movies are coming out. And I had the good sense to read the books before the movies came out. I knew they were coming out, but I didn't want to encounter Tolkien first through film. So I read it in 2000. Then 10 years later, 2010, I read it again. And then 2020, as we're going into lockdown, I thought, oh, I'm going to Middle Earth. And I read it again in 2020. I thought, okay, then I'll read it again in 2030. That was my idea. I'd read it every, uh, every 10 years was my plan, sort of, if, if it was a plan. But then something happened. Um, I kind of struck up a friendship with Fleming Rutledge. I don't know if you know who she is. She is she's largely retired now, but she is an Episcopalian uh, priest preacher extraordinaire, theologian, and writer. She's written many books. Maybe her magnus opus is Crucifixion. Wonderful book. And uh, we've become friends, acquaintances. I have admiration for her, and I endorsed one of her books, and then she returned the favor and gave me my favorite endorsement of When Everything's on Fire. But then she sent me a copy of this book that she wrote a few months ago. It's entitled, it was, it was uh, written, I think she wrote it in 2000. Let's just look. We're just taking our time here. 2004. It was written in 2004. She sent it to me earlier this year. It's called The Battle for Middle Earth, Tolkien's Divine Design in the Lord of the Rings. She is a, uh, she's a Tolkien enthusiast, and she found out that I was as well. And so she sent me her book, which is more or less a 400-page commentary <laughs> on the Lord of the Rings. So I read that. And then, okay, well, now I've just got to read the book again. Now, Tolkien, we'll get back to Revelation. This is all going to fit. Hang in there. This is all, this is all, there's a plan to this. Now, Tolkien famously, you know, resisted any description of the Lord of the Rings as an allegory. Okay, that's fine. It wasn't mechanical in that sense. On the other hand, though, in private correspondence, Tolkien did tell his friends, I have written a Christian story. And the references are there to be found by those 
who are looking for them. And I'm just, I, all I have to read is the scouring of the Shire and the Grey Havens and I've completed four readings of the Lord of the Rings. And this fourth time through, I've really been keenly aware of how profoundly Christian the story that Tolkien tells is. Now on Thursday, and if those of you, those of you that aren't familiar with us, just hang in there, we'll, we'll pull this together. But on Thursday, I was reading the part of the book where Faramir and Eowyn are in the houses of healing. They've been wounded and now they're being treated and they're recovering because as the book says, the hands of the king are hands of healing. Well, yeah. And they're in the houses of healing, Faramir and Eowyn, and they are looking to the east toward Mordor and it's darker than it's ever been. The sun no longer shines. And they sense that this darkness is drawing nearer, and they literally see it. It's drawing nearer and nearer, but, but they feel something as well, that a great threat of darkness is about to prevail. And as they stand there together, Eowyn asks Faramir this question, do you think that darkness is coming? Darkness unescapable. Faramir, no, I do not know what is happening. The reason of my waking mind tells me that great evil has befallen and we stand at the end of days. But my heart says nay, and all my limbs are light, and a hope and joy are come to me that no reason can deny. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. I read that, I said, oh, that's gonna be my sermon right there. That's where I got that. That's why I changed that title. So, so they, they, here's these two people, Faramir, Eowyn. They're aware of the darkness. They're watching the news. They know what's going on. Eowyn says, you know, do you think the darkness is going to prevail? You think the darkness is coming? Do you, do you think, do you think a darkness unescapable is going to prevail? And he says, no, no. I mean, I can't figure it out. If I just use my mind, if I just use my mind, it seems like, yeah, we're at the end of all things and this is what's gonna happen. But if I listen to my heart, my heart says, nay, I love that. Do you think the darkness will prevail? My heart says, nay. And I'm light of limb. I'm dancing with one hand waving free. I sense in my, if I listen to my heart, I do not believe that this darkness will endure. In a time of great darkness and trouble all around, be like Faramir or be like a Christian. Read the final two chapters of the Bible and listen to your heart and then confess, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. Amen? All right, let's, we got a few minutes. Let's actually look at some of these verses. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So there is the world that is and the world to come. But they are connected in a continuum. They are the same, but not the same. They are the same, 
It's this world that is to be saved. But they're the same, but they're not the same. I mean, is, is the caterpillar and the butterfly the same? They're the same, but not the same. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is he the same? Yes, he's the same. The tomb is empty, but he's not the same. In resurrection, he's different. In the tomb, risen. Caterpillar, butterfly. The old earth passing away. The old world, the old age passing away. The newness, but they're connected. It's not, we don't escape this. It isn't that this is abandoned and there's something altogether new. It is new. It is made new, no doubt about that. But it's made new out of the old so that there is a continuum. And the sea is no more. I said, what? We can't go to the beach in the age to come? This is a symbol, my friends. This is a symbol. We modern people, you know, we, we fancy the ocean and, and we think fondly of it and we've learned to explore it and go swimming and surfing and all that we do. Uh, ancients, not so much. They just saw it as largely as a place of uh, foreboding and danger. And in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the sea serves as the source of evil. And so the message is that in the cosmos to come, the capacity for evil will be eradicated. And I'm down with that. Amen. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So you see, it's, it's the marriage of heaven and earth. Something just happened that has split the two too far apart, but now they're going to be reunited. Again, the idea of a, of a I told you the dream I had last year. When I was in this big city, I think it was Barcelona, and I was seeing the cityscape, and it was beautiful, it was nice, it was great, it was wonderful. And then the sirens went off, like the trumpets. The sirens went off, and everybody knew what it meant. Kingdom come. And then the cityscape before me turned out to be like a veneer, like, like it was just made of fabric, and it began to shred and then be torn apart. And then behind that fabric was a new city, the same but not the same. It was the same, but it was far more glorious. All right, I think that's what's being communicated here. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Oh, how good is that? I mean, that's, that's Romans eight twenty eight. That God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. This is, uh, this is the tapestry of grace. This is all the pains and all the woundedness being healed. Not forgotten, but healed. Jesus in resurrection still has his wounds, but they don't cause him any pain. They're not a source of pain. They're a source of identity. And we'll be able to remember all that happened, but without any pain. And we say it's all been redeemed. We'll, we'll know truly that all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Verse five, then he who sits upon the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. There's your apocatastasis. 
that God is not giving up on his creation. He's not going to let it be forever marred and wounded by evil. He is going to heal it. And those that are in Christ, we who are in Christ are already participating in that newness, not in its fullness, but in its beginning. If anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. Right? So we're, all, we're already entering into this newness. We're already getting a foretaste. We're already participating in the newness. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. Oh, its gates will never be shut. The city, the city's 1,500 miles, long, wide, tall. Don't literalize this. It's the same dimension as the Roman Empire. And what John the Revelator is communicating by the Spirit is eventually the empire of heaven will overwhelm all the empires of earth. And there's 12 gates, three on north, south, east, west, but they're never closed. They're not there to keep anything out. They're there to direct people in. Well, who needs to come in? Well, remember, outside the city is the lake of fire. Again, don't literalize this. We'll look at this more next Sunday. But the gates are never shut because from within the city, the spirit and the bride say, hey, come, are you thirsty? They're in a lake of fire. I'm thinking they're thirsty. Are you thirsty? Well, then come on in. Wash your robes in the water of life, baptism, and enter the city and drink of the water of life. That's next. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Its gates will never be shut and there shall be no night there. The darkness will not endure. Stand with me. The good news, well, it's all good news. Every bit of this is good news. But part of the good news is that we can begin to live as citizens of New Jerusalem now. I invite you to believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the son of God who saves the world and then be baptized. We're baptizing what in two weeks, be baptized, wash your robes in the water of life and then enter the city and begin to live as those who are already anticipating the ultimate triumph of Christ. That in the midst of all that's wrong, and yes, there is a lake of fire that burns with sulfur for those that continue to want to follow the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. But in the midst of that, there is also the new Jerusalem. And that, you know what Word of Life Church is? It's a suburb of New Jerusalem, right here in St. Joseph, Missouri. A suburb of New Jerusalem. And we're inviting people, come, come. We have hope, we have good news. There's forgiveness. Come, enter the city and begin to do life with us. Amen and amen. Let's come to the table now. Join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the remittance of our sins. Most merciful God, 
we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for grace, ask for mercy. So in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.